This episode of the Think Podcast is brought to you by the Christian Culture Builders Facebook group. This is an amazing group filled with believers in Jesus, optimistically working to create great commission hubs for the spread of the gospel, the furthering of Christ's kingdom, and the emergence of Christian culture in the world. We are working through the three spheres of authority, the family, the church, and the state to make it happen. Check out the group by going to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Christian Culture Builders. Welcome to the Think Podcast, the show that tackles impossible questions from a biblical perspective with your host, Joel Sedeckes. And now get ready to think. What is the Bible all about? That's the key question today. God, is it about God's covenantal relationships with his creation? Is it about the people of God? Is it about the nation of Israel? Or is it about Jesus. Is it about all of the above or is it about something else? How you answer this question will affect your thinking about God's word, God's world, God's people, and God himself. On the Think Pod, we talk a lot about having a biblical worldview and the importance of that, looking out at the world through a biblical lens. But in the same way, guess what? We need to look at the Bible with a biblical lens as well. And so today we're going to discuss the lens of New Covenant Theology or NCT. I've had a significant number of people asking me, hey, have you done an episode on NCT? And not, we haven't exactly, we've gotten close, but uh, today we're going to talk about NCT and we're going to talk about how NCT, New Covenant Theology, differs from its biggest competitors, Covenant Theology and Dispensationalism, as well as what the difference is between NCT and its sibling, progressive covenantalism, and which one is better. And my guest and I may get into a little bit of a scuffle today, theologically speaking, and that's okay, because my guest today is a, um, a pastor and an author. His name is A. Blake White. He goes by Blake White, which is appropriate since his name is A. Blake White. And Blake is the lead pastor of Southside Baptist Church in Abilene, Texas. And uh, that's the only time you're going to hear a, a Texas accent from me. That was horrible. I apologize to everyone. Uh, Blake is the author of a dozen books, including What is New Covenant Theology? As well as God's Chosen People and the Law of Christ. He has a Master's of Divinity from Southern Seminary and a Master's of Theology from Southwestern Seminary. Blake is married to Alicia and they have five children. And he joins us today on the Think podcast Tuesday too for so Blake welcome to the podcast brother hey thanks for having me man glad to be here man I I gotta say um when I found out you were going to the fight laugh feast conference which uh I'm, I'm repping you can see everyone I'm I'm repping I'm triggering all of our uh NCT brothers right now because this is a a, a group run by theonomists but um I met you down there, and when I found out you were going to be down there, I was like, man, this is this is encouraging. There's going to be another um, NCT heretic down at that conference. <laughs> There's two of us. Come on. I actually met a third. Now, I didn't get his permission to reveal his name, okay. but there were at least three. So uh, He was incognito, no doubt. <laughs> So, uh, Blake, could you give us a little bit of your background? Um, man, you've, you've, done, you've done so much and you're doing so much that has inspired me as I've gotten to know you um, a little bit. But give us a little bit of your background. Um, how did you become a pastor? How did you become passionate about theology? And maybe tell us a little bit about your family as well. 
Yeah, yeah. Be glad to, man. And my apologies to your listeners. I've got some pretty severe allergies, hopefully not developing into the Cornovas. Time will tell. <laughs> God is sovereign. Um, Amen. Yeah, so, man, I grew up in Texas, and if, if you know Texas, everybody is a Christian in Texas. And so I thought I was up until uh, 18, actually, and uh, God saved me as a freshman in college. And uh, my idol at the time was, was hoops, basketball, and so I was on that track, thought I'd play, thought I'd coach. And uh, God saved me, and then my, my sophomore year, I just really began to grow in understanding God's Word uh, and God's grace and God's power and God's sovereignty. And through a, a deeper understanding of the word, felt called the ministry uh, there my sophomore year. So I started making plans and, ha- you know, I was a blank slate, basically, in terms of theology. I didn't know anything and uh, started studying, uh, really wanted to prove some guys wrong about the doctrine of predestination. Uh, so there were some guys at my college that were kind of worldly. And I thought, you know, that's a hindrance to evangelism. And open up the Bible, realizing pretty quickly, okay, sounds like it says this, it does say this. And so I tried to seek some outside help and found help most clearly from guys. Again, I didn't know who they were, but I would come to find out later were Anglicans and Presbyterians. So I thought, man, maybe I need to become Presbyterian. I had gone to a Baptist church just because it was close to the campus. And um, I was reading guys like Packer and Sproul and uh, being helped when it comes to the doctrine of salvation. Uh, so I had a kind of a crisis of faith of what am I? Am I Baptist or Presbyterian? Which leads into our discussion today. On the other side of it, I became all the more committed to a Baptistic position, although I really wanted to be Presbyterian, but uh, just couldn't go there exegetically. Uh, so I ended up going to Southern Seminary, had a great time there back in 2006, 2010, um, and have been doing some ministry ever since. I did another degree at Southwestern and have been various places here at Southside and Abilene. Love this church. very faithful church, healthy leadership. And so I've got the 35 year plan trying to find my, my grave plots. I've been married to a, a lovely wife and five kiddos, 10 to three. So life is full, but fun. Man, praise, praise God for that. I like that. The, um, you mentioned the 35 year plan. Uh, and, and how many years have you been there at uh, Southside Baptist? I'm going into my fourth. So, okay. So, so 31 to go. That's right. Yeah. Lord willing. Yeah. Praise God, man. That's great. And you've got some, man, we've got so much to talk about, but you've got some really exciting things on the horizon. I know because we're both in the Christian Culture Builders Facebook group, and you've been talking about how you, uh, a very exciting project you guys are working on. I, uh, before we get into the theology, could you just share that with us? And um, you know, maybe you'll inspire somebody else to do something similar. Yeah, absolutely, man. So we look around, you know, just where our culture's at, uh, and it, it's, in, it's in a bad place. So we want to be on the offensive. And uh, part of that for us is, is starting a, a three-day-a-week Christian classical school option. Part of it's our city, where we're at, um, and the size and, and the lack of such an option. And uh, the biggest thing is just the potential that we think such a school could have to make sure we make disciples. That's kind of the way we to view it. So hmm. well, Lord willing, start next fall. And uh, we have a meeting this weekend, actually. So appreciate your prayers, Info- informational meeting, but it's coming together well. We've got some key families uh, involved and really excited about what, what God has in store for us here. Praise God, man. Well, I really appreciated your post. Uh, you dropped a lot of knowledge bombs uh, in that Facebook group where you were sharing about, hey, here's how I did it. Here's how you can do it as well. 
and uh, both you and Brian Sauve in that group really um, had a lot of great things to say. And so that's, it's a dream of mine to start a school someday. Uh, education is definitely a major passion of mine. So it's, it's great to learn from you brothers who are several steps ahead and uh, to kind of to learn what to expect. Um, yeah, so, I should say, man, we should talk again in six months, eight months, because we still have a long way to go. <laughs> amen. Amen. And and I would love to. So the question of the day here, Blake, is what is New Covenant theology? Why don't we start there as kind of our big idea? And then I'd like to kind of walk through, after we outline what it is, maybe we can outline and compare and contrast it with some other systems. But what is this if you want to call it a system, a lot of guys don't like to call it a system, but what is new covenant theology? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm fine calling it a system. It's, it's one of the three main, if, if listeners are new to the discussion, one of the three main biblical theological systems uh, when it comes to putting the canon of scripture together. So we've got dispensationalism on the one hand, covenant theology, other, and, and when I'm speaking, we don't have enough time to get super nuanced. I'm going to generalize. There's, there's variations within all these. Uh, so bound to make somebody mad. Well, that wasn't my version. That wasn't my plan. <laughs> right. But uh, generally speaking, there's three. And uh, most people, every, everybody will fall into one of those. Even if you never heard of them, we can ask a few key questions and be able to place you, you know, in one of these places. So when I was at Southern, I'd find a lot of times, you know, mostly Baptist, mostly reformational leaning. Uh, if they haven't had this conversation, I would just ask a few key questions. And the vast majority actually landed within NCT, whether they knew it or not. Um, mm. So. So it's one of the three, and uh, you know we all are in-house debate, all evangelical, all want to let Scripture drive, but we argue, and you know I'll try to make a case as we go that NCT is the most consistently exegetically informed system. So wanting to let exegesis be the lifeblood of our theology, the heartbeat of it, the norming norm, the 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 just the, the heartbeat of what we're doing. And alongside that, we think that it's the most Christ-centered, and we think those two go hand in hand. And again, others will say, no, we disagree, and that's where we've got to get into the details and try to make a case for why we see it as the most consistently Christ-centered and exegetically informed biblical theological system. That's the kind of the big picture. Now, beyond that, the way I've tried to articulate it is with seven essentials, and I lay these out in that little book, What is New Covenant Theology? And uh, you want me to run through those? So, Sorry, yeah, I was working on a graphic. I do my own producing as well as hosting here. So, yes, <laughs> please, if you could, I think that'd be very, very helpful, Blake, if you could lay out those distinctives for us. Yeah, absolutely, man. And these these are important to me because there there's even diversity within NCT or even PC, but I think all progressive covenantal or new covenant theologians, I'm pretty sure all of them would affirm these seven essentials. They may want to add some. I don't think they would take away from these seven essentials. Again, more to say, but here's the core. And each of these are in conversation with the other system, but all together they uniquely make up one system. So I'll lay that as we go. But first, there's one plan of God centered in Jesus Christ. And of course, that's in dialogue with both. You know, some dispensationalists will teach that God basically has two plans. It's plan A for Israel, plan B for the church. Uh, and have dispensations, uh, usually seven, sometimes four. But then on the other hand, covenant theology lays it out in terms of covenants. Uh, theological covenants, non-biblical covenants to try to structure the canon. And we want to stick with the biblical language everywhere we can. And that's from Ephesians 1. The purpose, the plan of God is to unite all things in Jesus Christ. 
Ephesians 1, 8 to 11. Uh, and then in 310, we see it through the church, uh, the one new man that God is showing his wisdom. And so there's one plan of God and it's centered in Jesus Christ. That's the first point. Second point, and this is really in contrast with dispensationalism, and that is that the Old Testament should be interpreted in light of the New Testament. You know, we, we have the answers in the back of the book. Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of Revelation, Hebrews 1.1. He's now spoken to us in the Son. It all points to him. John 5, Moses wrote about me. Luke 24, transfiguration. You got Elijah and Moses representing the prophets and the law. And the voice says, listen to my son. And the disciples look up and Jesus alone is there. He is the definitive revelation. And we got to look at every all previous revelation in light of him. And so that's going to be a big hermeneutical difference between us and dispensationalism. Covenant theology, I think, would say yes and amen to that. Uh, third point, the Old Covenant was temporary by divine design and all of it. So this is more in, con in conversation with covenant theology. And this, is, and this is a whole book of Galatians. Maybe we'll have time to dig in. But Galatians 3 is huge here to show that the Old Covenant law had a definitive starting point. 430 years after Abraham, it was not eternal, and a definitive ending point, that is, until the Messiah comes, and uh, now we're not under the law. Uh, Hebrews, again, the whole book about, the book is really about it, especially chapter 7 and chapter 8, so we're not under the Old Covenant. The fourth one is that the this law, this Old Covenant, is a unit, uh, and so, of course, covenant theology wants to divide it into tripartite division, moral, ceremonial, civil, and that just doesn't have exegetical grounding. It, it makes sense to us, and it's it's neat. You just can't find verses yeah. that do that. The Jewish people didn't look at it that way. Aquinas was probably the first one to do that. Uh, we just don't see it in Scripture. It's a it's a do whole package deal. Do you recognize a distinction? I know um, some some would say that there's a distinction between the three, moral, civil, and ceremonial, but not a division. Do you make that? Uh, would would you be comfortable saying that, or are you not comfortable with that at all? No, I don't think exegetically. I don't think I would be. Okay, okay. I mean, you just get really, it becomes really subjective and arbitrary. I think. Well, yeah, that's the problem, especially when you get to that the, the Sabbath command. You're right. Is that yeah. moral? Exactly. Oof. We can talk more about that, but I, I didn't mean to cut you off. Please continue. This is great. No, it's all good, man. Yeah, and, and you see that in Exodus. You see how it's laid out as a, as a unit. Exodus 19, you have that historical prologue. 20, of course, is the Decalogue, the 10 words. And then 21 to 23, you have the ordinances. And then 24, he calls it all the Book of the Covenant. You know, it's it's they go together. So it can't be extrapolated out. So um, my, my covenant brothers don't like that point, but I think it's exegetically grounded. Fifth point. What don't they like about that, Blake? Well, because they want to make the Decalogue the, the moral, right? The eternal right. moral law of God. And the where the rubber is going to meet the road on that is the Sabbath commandment. Mm. So. Right, right. Which had civil implications, which is in the quote-unquote moral law of the, being in the Decalogue, and then which is ceremonial because at least um, in terms of covenant theology today, it's tied to corporate worship. Yeah. E even even if maybe you know Moses didn't understand it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, so so please continue. Okay. So uh, six. Then these are all obviously really tightly tied. But Christians are not under the law of Moses then, but under the law of Christ. Um, and I want to go to a passage. So if you listeners have Bibles, open it up. There's there's several really crucial passages. One's Galatians three. Another's Hebrews seven and eight. 
Hey, let me read First Corinthians nine in this on this point. Not under the law of Moses, but under the law of Christ. So if you got your Bible, look at nine nineteen. Nine nineteen he says, Though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, Jewish. But then there's this really important parenthetical comment. Though not being myself under the law. It's a really shocking statement. That I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, Gentiles, I became as one outside the law. Another really important parenthetical comment. Not being outside the law of God, but in Amos Christu under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. So notice what Paul did there, man. He's got these three categories. He's got Jewish under the law, Gentile outside the law. He's neither of those. He's in this third category where he's not outside the law of God, but he's under the law of Christ. So for Paul now in the new covenant age, the law of God is no longer the law of Moses. That's just one of our favorite passages. It's so crystal clear. Right, right. I mean, Paul really does lay it out there. And, and, um, well, okay. So, so please continue because, um, you know, as we go, we, at some point we're going to need to ad- address the accusation that new covenant theology is, you know, the, the quote unquote new kid on the block. And, uh, you know, that, that it's not actually explicitly found in scripture. I think in this passage of first Corinthians nine, 19 through 22, I think you, you just kind of showed the lie to that, that, it is a biblical system. It's found right there in scripture. Yeah, absolutely. So then the next point, this will be point number six, all members of the new covenant community are filled indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So this is in contrast to covenant theology, mostly to show that there's this newness to the church. The church is new. We would agree with dispensationalism in that. And every member is indwelt by the Spirit. And this is starting back in the Old Testament, early as Deuteronomy chapter 30, that the Spirit would, the hearts would be circumcised, heart circumcision, change from the inside out. Ezekiel 36, I'm going to take out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. I'm going to put my Spirit within you. Jeremiah 31, which is a parallel New Covenant promise, all in the New Covenant community will know the Lord. They'll have the law written on their heart, heart transformation. So another way of saying that is it's a, it's a regenerate community. The New Covenant community is all regenerate. There is no believers and unbelievers. It's not a mixed community. Right. And there are there are implications. What are the implications of that fact for like church membership and baptism, Blake? Yeah, absolutely. Well, if if Jeremiah 31 is promising a, a, a community unlike that of the old that was basically unfaithful, but all will know the Lord. I mean, yeah, that's where denominational distinctions come in. That's where this conversation becomes really practical. Yeah. Is that how are we going to do church and how are we going to apply the sign then? So it entails believers baptism. It entails uh, regenerate church membership. Okay. So, so you laid out the, the distinctives. Wait, did you talk about number seven yet? The uh... No, one more, one more. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Please. And this one's back in conversation with dispensationalism. And that's mm-hmm. that the church is the eschatological Israel. And so dispensationalism is known for their clear distinction between the church and Israel. And New Covenant Theology, very similar, but still a little different than Covenant Theology is going to teach that the church fulfills the promises of God through Christ by virtue of union with Christ. Second Corinthians one twenty, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. So we then now, if you are of Christ, Galatians 
then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So what do you say to someone who says, well, what you're describing, Blake, this is replacement theology. I heard that term used recently uh, from a friend, and this is replacement theology. You're you're just uh, negating the promises of God to Abraham and uh, to Isaac and Jacob and setting all those aside, and God's promises can't be broken. So NCT must not be right because God didn't replace Israel with the church, and, and you know that's not correct. Yeah, absolutely. When you hear that, you can almost always just know that it's a dispensationalist. In fact, my degree at uh, Southwestern was under Craig Blazing. I love Craig Blazing. Very, very brilliant scholar, knows the history of research like the back of his hand. But he would say that about my view. You know, that's just replacement theology. And I've explained to him why it wasn't. And at the uh-huh. end, he'd say, like I said, it's replacement theology. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but no, so, man, I, this is an important point. This, yeah, the whole what do you point say? is that God is being faithful to these promises. He's keeping them. And so the way we view the story of Jesus in the Gospels is the continuation and completion of the story of Israel. And that's why those beginning of those gospels are so saturated with the Old Testament. They're just shouting from the rooftop. All our Christmas passages is that these promises are coming to fruition now. Jesus is bringing the fulfillment and continuation of Israel now just around himself. John 1, right? He came to his own. His own did not receive him, but to all who did receive him to them, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, not of the will of man, not of the will of flesh, but of God. So Amen. He, he's redefining it. He's reconstituting Israel around himself, starting with 12 apostles, which leads into the church. And again, one of the best ways to see this is chasing those Old Testament quotations when they're used in the New Testament, which is on every page. Mm. So what you're describing, I got to say, Blake, I don't know if you had this experience. But when I first started learning about NCT six years ago or so, New Covenant Theology, my experience was I realized I already believed all this stuff. Now, I was raised in somewhat of a, it was a church that had kind of an unspoken commitment to dispensationalism. We were dispensationalish, you know, uh, a lot of that had to do with eschatology. And, um, and yes, we are getting questions on eschatology. And maybe that'll be another point of disagreement for us as we go. But in terms of how the whole Bible fits together and the role of the church and you know these seven distinctives that you just mentioned, I found out I already believed all these things. I just didn't have a name for it. Was, yeah. that, was that your experience as well? Yeah, somewhat, man. Some of it was was coming into it uh, about baptism. That was my driving question initially mm. that I didn't have categories for. But my as I came into this, asking questions, trying to become Presbyterian, <laughs> right. um, basically one of the books that really just cleared the, the fog from my head was John Riesinger's Abraham's Four Seeds. And the subtitle of that book mm. is A Critical Examination of the Presuppositions of Covenant Theology and Dispensationalism. So he doesn't do a lot of constructive work in that book, but he just shows how the presuppositions are actually similar and wrong. And so that was helpful for me to realize, okay, I am going to keep baptizing believers, not babies. And as I read the scripture, went to seminary, and really to this day, continue to teach expositionally through the Bible, these basic convictions have only been strengthened. Okay. So you wanted to become a Presbyterian, couldn't do that because scripture didn't support it. Man, I've had a similar experience, not with Presbyterianism, but with like 1689 
London Baptist confessionalism. Man, I, Blake, I wish I could get there. I really <laughs> do because it would make my life so much easier. I could just, so many more people would know where I'm coming from. Um, it would get me in with all the the the, the really cool Reformed Baptists. Um, we're in the situation right now. I, I, I explained it to you, but um, I might very soon find myself associating with a lot more Reformed Baptist guys. And it's, I wish I could get there. And I can't. Can you explain? Because you're a Southern Baptist, mm -hmm. but you're not. You don't consider yourself to be a 1689 uh, um, Federalist or Reformed Baptist. Can you explain? Maybe the distinctive, the distinction between those two schools of thought in particular. I, th I think there's a lot out there about covenant theology broadly, and especially Presbyterianism versus NCT. I I'd like to know a little bit more your thoughts on why why can't you be a Reformed Baptist, a 1689 Federalist, and and what is that? Would you mind unpacking that for us? Yeah, well, let me rest to rest to affirm, man. I want to keep, especially in today's climate, man, uh, how how we're on the same team here, especially nice. these types of brothers, man. There's a there's a particular Reformed Baptist guy who, on the blurb of a book, said New Covenant theology is something like one of the greatest dangers facing theology today. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. Man, you need to get outside a little more. Turn on the news. Because <laughs> <laughs> right. what I'll say, man, you've got, you know, you've got Christians. So let's say just Christians. Then you've got Reformational Christians. Right. Then you've got, you know, Baptistic Christians. And then we've got our little division. So, right, man, right. Got, a, got a ton of good friends. I love the 1689, man. It's so beautiful. I'm with you. I wish I, wish I could subscribe to it. But man, the thing is basically a baptized version of the Westminster. And again, I love the Westminster, but it's a baptized version of it and just changed in key places. The whole substructure of the thing is built around covenant theology, covenant of redemption, grace, works. And so the whole substructure of it, I think, is not biblically informed, which, which gets, again, real practical on the Sabbath issue. Now, they change baptism, rightly, um, but, but the Sabbath becomes the the dividing issue then between a guy like me and a 1689er. Okay. So, so, um, what, why, why is that? Maybe if take, take that a step further. So is, isn't this something we can just sort of agree to disagree on? And, uh, you know, I mean, maybe scripture's a little ambiguous on that and, and Hey, look, okay. It was based off the Westminster, but I mean, the Westminster was written by a lot of great, you know, those divines, they were great genius Bible scholars. You know, why can't we just sort of go along to get along? I mean, why why divide out? Especially, as you said, we're so close in terms of, you, you know, the, all the sects and denominations and sub-denominations and movements out there. We're so close. Why not just try to blend everything together just for the sake of getting along? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, in my position, I'm able to, to have kind of more of that approach of, hey, okay. you want to observe a day. Uh, you can. That's Romans 14, right? Their position, though, to be consistent, they can't okay. quite have that freedom with me. They can't say to me, hey, feel free to not observe the Sabbath, because for right. them, it's on the same moral level as murder and adultery. Right. Well, now, one of my friends. Right, right. Te technically, my, it's supposed to be. Yeah. Right. Here's Then here's one of my frustrations is most of my friends, uh, Reformed friends, 1689 friends, live just like I do on the weekend. Mm -hmm. And I've never met a friend who disciplined anybody over breaking the sabbath but yet again right. it's one of the 10 it's one of the decalogue it's it's you know 
the eternal moral law of God. We cannot fudge it just like we would fudge with, we wouldn't with adultery or murder, or these other things. But here's the challenge, man. Here's the, where I want to press on my brothers. You look at the New Testament teaching, I just think it's explicitly clear whether we're talking about Galatians 4, 8 to 10, Colossians 2, 16 and 17, Romans 14, 5. And the theme in all those passages is don't judge one another right. about the Sabbath. Right. I get judged quite a bit about the Sabbath. Yeah. And Colossians 2 explicitly says that no, let no one disqualify you. It was a shadow. The substance belongs to Christ. Well, I get disqualified all the time, called an antinomian and written off. And John, John faced the same thing. John Reesinger, mentor of mine, the late John Reesinger, and he would get so frustrated in the same thing because he'd preach in some of their churches, especially back in the day when no one was preaching the doctrines of grace. And, and his Presbyterian friends would say, hey, let's go play around a golf after church. And he'd be like, are you kidding me? <laughs> Not an option. Right. So, so that's, you know, um, so I'm friends with uh, 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 1689. Federalist pastor Joe Thorne, and man, Joe's Joe's a great guy. Although I will say, the oh, first yeah. time I first time I met him, I'm hanging out at his church, and he goes, we we talk, we get into these, just, you know, I'm sort of in like my NCT cage stage. This is back, you know, 2014, <laughs> 2015, and uh, for those for the uninitiated, the cage stage is when you first. Usually, it's it's described of in terms of Calvinism, or as uh, as Blake put it, the doctrines of grace, but you convert to this new theological position and you become so gung ho about it that it's all you want to talk about. And you're really, all you're going to do is damage. So somebody needs to lock you in a cage. That's they, they call that the cage stage. Yeah. And I so wonder I'm how in, that went with Joe. <laughs> uh, well, so that's, so we're talking, and man, gracious brother, yeah, yeah, very gracious pastor's heart. And uh, so we're talking and, and he goes, we, we go out of there and I, I don't know if we went to the cigar lounge immediately after that but he goes and he introduces me to um a couple of guys and he goes hey everybody this is joel he's a new covenant heretic <laughs> and that's i'm like oh hey you know good to know where i stand but we we got we did talk about the sabbath and he subscribes and i don't want to misquote him joe if you ever listen to this you know let me know if i'm mis, uh, misrepresenting you here but he subscribes to a school of thought that essentially says the way we observe the Sabbath. So he would say the Lord's day is the Sabbath, which I can't, I can't get with him on that. In fact, I'm not even hundred percent sold on the fact that Sunday is the Lord's day. Okay. Because I, you know, it's, there, there's some issues there, but um, what he says is the way we observe the Sabbath or the Lord's day is when we are gathered for corporate worship, we're observing it. And then once corporate worship has adjourned that, the observation has been fulfilled and we're no longer obligated really to keep the rest of the day as a day of rest or a day of, you know, prayer or, or whatever. And I, I man, I, for those who are listening to the audio later, Blake's shaking his head at that right now. Uh, what do you, what do you make of that, man? Again, I hope I'm not misrepresenting the position, but what do you make of that? Well, Hey, I really, I'm really grateful for Joe too, but I would, I would say, brother, that, that is not what the Bible teaches. The other piece of that commandment is work six days. That's not optional. Right. right. Work six days. Right. And rest. It's not about worship. It's about rest in the Old Testament. So I don't want to be too, you know, no. self-promoting, but my most recent book on the Sabbath is small, and it's, it's, it's really a little bit geared to my 1689 friends. It deals a little bit with some of the confessional differences between First and Second London and the providential mm -hmm. circumstances of why that happened. But 
I would just humbly say that's inconsistent. And that's the biggest thing is most of those guys, in my opinion, are inconsistent in their practice of what the confession says. Okay. Okay. So let me give you one more pushback on this then. Uh, um, what do you say to somebody who says, well, look, we are, we do want to be consistent about this. And for, let's say you have a church member, you're a pastor. I'm a former pastor. Let's say you have a church member and, and let's say that you were convinced that Sunday is the Sabbath, the new covenant Sabbath. Again, just to, in case people are just joining us, neither of us believes that, but let's say that you did. And let's say you had a member who consistently missed corporate gathering, not because they were sick or afraid of the coronavirus or what have you, but they just, you know, they, they're golfing instead of going to church, instead of worshiping. Would you put a person like that, a member like that, under church discipline? And if so, aren't you sort of tacitly agreeing that Sunday is the new covenant Sabbath? Maybe, well, let me know if I don't um, answer that question. My own, our own practice here at Southside is we would, and we do regularly. If we haven't seen somebody, now Corona has uh, changed the dynamic a little bit, but if we don't see someone for three months, you know, we're regularly praying through our membership directory. We're going to reach out to them. And if they don't respond, we'll, you know, we're going to chase, we're going to shepherd them, right? We're going to go after stray sheep. Um, and ultimately though, that could be, if they're just avoiding, that could be a disciplinable matter, right? But not because of any Sabbath commandment, but because of Hebrews 10 and not forsaking the gathering with the saints. So I would say it's a different, it's a different deal, uh, different moral plane, different passages. Um, so I don't find that inconsistent personally. Okay. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense to me. And that's, that's and what um, I mean more Joel is like going golfing on Sunday or watching the NFL on Sunday or cooking meals on Sunday or, or going out to eat on Sunday uh -huh. Uh -huh. works of employment or enjoyment. So the wording of the actual confession that's supposedly subscribed to, right? Not, not, not so much the corporate worship aspect. We ought to value Sundays and ought to be a day where we gather and spend time with the church all for that. I think so, it ought to be Sunday if it can be, yeah. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about are we implementing uh, discipline over breaking the Sabbath, meaning not resting the entire day or working six days. Okay. Now, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. That makes a lot of sense. The one thing that I wish, Blake, more than Joe Thorne, more than my Presbyterian brothers, the one person I wish that was on our side was Spurgeon. Because, you, know, <laughs> you know, Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers, man, he called out quote-unquote Sabbath-breaking, people who skipped church. He called it Sabbath-breaking. I mean, he was clearly a 1689er. And I yeah. just, mm, I, uh, I, I just, I just wish that I had the prince. It would have added a lot of weight and credibility to our side, I think, if we had uh, the Spurge on our side. But Well, he is now. Oh, amen. <laughs> <laughs> you know who amen. I wish we had, man, even more than Spurge. I wish we had Ryle. Oh, J.C. Ryle. Why? Why do you wish we had Ryle? Oh, man, he's just, just personally, I love him, man. Edifying, mm. you know, even even more text-rooted, I think, than, uh, than Spurgeon on a lot of issues. Mm. Love them both, though, man. Don't make me choose. Amen. Amen. Uh, okay, so we've, we've talked about Reformed Baptist theology. We talked, we did get into a little bit, you know, some of the, the uh, comparisons and, and contrast to dispensational theology. And it's interesting because with our, with our listenership, for this particular podcast, for the Think Podcast, we we have sort of tacit dispensationalists. I don't know how many explicit dispensationalists we have, especially nowadays. You know, fewer people I think claim that title, although it's been the default thinking of evangelicalism for the last 
you know, 60, 70, 80 years, you know, so there's a lot of people who might not call themselves dispensationalists, but are looking out for the antichrist or, you know, believe we're living in the last days of the, you know, the last minutes of the last days. Um, I think maybe we can get around back to that again. What I'd like to do though, Blake, um, just because of where we're at in, in the time of this episode, let's take a few comments and then I would like to hash out. Now, this is just personally, just for you and me, I would like to hash out a little bit of our, some of our eschatology. And this is just personal for me because I'm working through that right now. And I've been on an eschatological journey for the last uh, eight, nine years or so. And I think that we differ in this. And so maybe we can maybe we can work our way through the comments. And then there's one comment that's going to bring that up specifically from Jay Wise, our brother. Um, and I think it was Jay Wise. But, but let's work our way through there because we've got a lot of comments here. So you good to take a few? Yes, sir. Okay. So first of all, this is just a comment. Ron McKinney says, good to see Blake. Looking forward to the interview. All right. Hey, Ron, what's up, man? Okay. Uh, Curtis Cutler. <laughs> Curtis Cutler asks, was there ever a settled acronym for these points? He's talking about the seven distinctives of Newcomer. Man, I haven't even tried. That's a good thought, though. Curtis, I think it's going to be up to you, man. There you go, man. Let us know. Let us know what you come up with. Oh, but we got to hide that one for now. That's from Jay Wise. We're going to tackle that at the end, Jay. Uh, okay. Jay Wise also is, is uh, he likes the idea. He says, not replacement, it's fulfillment. Come on now. I love it. So that's, so yeah. amen. Boom. There you amen. go. <sighs> Jay, Jay's trolling me today, man. He says, he says PC is closer than NCT. So come on, inch a little closer. Okay, look, we 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 have to get here, Blake. We have to talk about the difference between. Here's what Jay is referring to. This comment came in when I said I wish I could be a Reformed Baptist, or maybe he's responding to you saying you wish you could be a Presbyterian, and he's saying that progressive covenantalism is closer to the covenant side than is the new covenant theology. So, man, what is PC? Because up until very recently, I thought that the major difference between progressive covenantalism um, and new covenant theology, I thought that the main, and by the way, you know, I had Steve Wellam on this podcast and, and he's sort of the, he's the guy when it comes to PC. But I thought the main difference was, is there a, gov- a garden covenant? Was did God make a covenant with Adam and Eve? But as I heard Steve Wellam unpack new uh, unpack progressive covenantalism recently, he really frames the whole thing in terms of he he really views the Bible through the lens that it's all about God's covenantal relationships with His creatures. And so, I know that you're more of a PC guy. It, would you say that that's because that's a very covenant theology kind of perspective, you know, where you view everything through the covenants. First of all, is that what PC is? Is that different from NCT? And is that something you personally hold to? Yeah. Well, first off, what is PC? The best thing to do is go grab uh, Kingdom Through Covenant. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a uh, it's it's massive, uh, and it it is it is very detailed, especially Dr. Gentry's you know comments on the Old Testament. But fantastic book. Probably the best thing to way to tackle that thing, especially pastors. It's it is not easy. You need Greek and Hebrew, but um, I think it's chapter sixteen. Doctor Willem has a summary chapter 
Okay. Um, I haven't made a logical summary. I'm like I'm like a, a quarter of the way through. Have been for years. So yeah. <laughs> There's a smaller version. I haven't read it, but uh, I think it's God's Kingdom through God's Covenant. But starting with Owen's summary chapter to get your bearings. That's that's the that's the the book. You ask what PC is. There you go. Um, okay. There's another follow-up volume called Progressive Covenantalism that last I checked was out of print for some reason. B and H doesn't have their stuff in order. Great book, man. I, I don't know if I disagree with hardly anything in either of those volumes. Uh, if so, pretty pretty small, petty stuff. Okay. Now the comment. Um, and by the way, Dr. Wellam has. A, I, I'm I'm friends with Dr. Wellam. I've learned a ton from that man. Uh, really, really respect both him and Dr. Gentry. So I'm not one that's wanting to put a big, uh, you know, bifurcation between the two personally. Again, if you look at these seven essentials, um, I'm pretty sure all would agree uh, with with the seven essentials. We might disagree on some more peripheral things, but the core, I think, is here. Now, the comment about God dealing with all those people covenantally, I guess the question is how else how else would he? Um, you know, you could look at any any slot in Scripture, and you can ask, "Where are we at in terms of God's outworking plan?" And it's going to be in a covenant, right? It depends on where at. So, yeah, okay, okay. I don't know if that's what he means by that or not. I'm not sure. Well, but I mean, well, I mean, the most glaring, obvious a- answer to that would be Adam in the garden, unless you presuppose that all God's dealings with man are covenantal. I mean, you said it yourself in in. Um, the video, uh, the the sermon you preached called Kingdom Through Covenant. Some people don't see a covenant in the Garden of Eden, and the scripture doesn't explicitly use the word covenant there. So if you're going to say all God's dealings with humankind are covenantal, man, what do you do with Adam? Unless you have, you you basically have to read a covenant into that, correct? Well, he would, he would argue vociferously uh, for the presence of a covenant, right? That's what a good chunk of that book is about. Okay. Uh, so yeah, you would, if, if that's the case, if you denied it, if you denied a covenant there, you wouldn't say God always feels covenantally. You would say from Genesis three on or Genesis six on or whatever. I will say though, man, those who want to make this issue, the distinction, it won't work historically. Not if you look at who's been published, you look at some of the early thinkers and writers within NCT, many, if not most affirmed a covenant there. So you can't say that's the distinction. Uh, Gary Long argued, you know, heavily, heavily for it many, many, many years ago. So can we they, just that, uh, p- posthumously excommunicate them all from NCT? Say you guys were never, yeah. you were never among us. You went out just from cancel us. them, cancel yeah. them. That would be cancel fitting, them. I guess. Tear down their statues. Yeah, that's popular <laughs> now. Okay, you know. so 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 you're saying that the idea of God relating covenantally towards his creatures, towards specifically his image bearers, i.e. mankind, that is a very NCT idea. Oh, I, th- I think so. Yeah. I don't okay. Now I don't know if, that I usually say that, but I don't, I don't see a problem with that either. Okay. Um, and I also don't think that this issue, this issue has proven to be really divisive between the two. And for the life of me, I don't really understand why, because those who deny uh, covenant with creation still affirm its absolute importance Adam's importance as the representative of humanity, on and on and on. This is even Paul Williamson uh, in the little book, The New Studies in Biblical Theology, Sealed with an Oath. Uh, he gets a bad rap because he denies the covenant there. Um, but he's very strong on the importance of creation and 
and the, the same reading of Romans 5. So I, I tend to think it gets a little bit overblown when we land, everyone lands in the same place. No one's denying original sin here in these right, conversations. Right. And Blake, if I may, this is why. So uh, sidebar, have you ever read the reformers and their stepchildren? By, uh, yeah, been a while, been a long time. Okay. Verduin, Leonard Verduin. Yes, yes, Verduin. yes. Yes. So in that book, so I love that book, man. I love, I'm not a, I'm not a Baptist trail of blood guy, but I kind of, I kind of almost kind of, you know what I mean? Like, like, uh, those Montanists might've been onto something there. Um, <laughs> all right. Not, Don't go there, man. No, 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 no. I'm not going there. I'm, that's, I say that mostly facetiously. Okay. But, but, uh, in that book, I, you know, I, I, I see modern day Baptists and especially, uh, like Calvinist Baptists, especially NCT and and PC, we sort of are the inheritors of this tradition of you know believers' baptism. And while the the, the Presbyterians, the Anglicans, the Lutherans, and the Roman Roman Catholics, um, they were all out baptizing their babies. We were holding firm, baptizing only believers. But I'll tell you what, man, another distinctive of being a Baptist is we love to split. We love to yeah, divide. And so the Presbyterians, even to this day, man, the Presbyterians, at least the good Presbyterians, they're, if I may, they're all out building culture, uh, building institutions. And what are we doing? Splitting hairs about was there a covenant in the garden? Like, you know what I mean? Like, come on, man. We got to, at some point, we have to rally together if we're going to, you know, like if we're going to, uh, I think that we, I think the Christians should be in the business of building culture, schools, businesses, institutions. So I want to see more coalescing and, and less uh, disagreement there. But, but hey, we're, dude, you're, you're preaching my sermon, man. That's why with these seven essentials, I'm like, I, and by the way, before this book was published, I sent it out far and wide to every, every adherent I know, knew and said, Hey, what would you add, take away in terms of the core? Mm. And I uh, got a lot of good feedback. And that's why that little book's blurbs. It's got as many blurbs as it does pages to try to say, yeah. Here's the core to you know to be on the same team. Yeah, we can have discussions, but we need to move forward together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's really good. Okay, so so would you put yourself in the progressive covenantalist camp or the new covenant theology camp, or or do you want to just say that's the same camp? Oh man, gosh, I say NCT because of the history and to honor John. Having said that, there's very little I disagree with in PC. So okay. I'm probably the wrong guy to ask. We ought to ask. Uh, Ask them. I was just with with Dr. Wellum, uh, you know, about a month ago, and he was doing some talks on this. Which, by the way, in those talks, he would go back and forth between PC and NCT himself. Hmm. So interesting. Okay. Now, you know, PC. We could talk long about how the label came into fruition, and sometimes you need that with uh, in the academy a fresh, clever label to mm -hmm. advance the conversation. But I will say, there's a book published by B and H on I think it's three or four views of Israel. Chad Brand, church history prophet, Southern wrote the he wrote the progressive covenantal entry. Okay. And I don't agree with it. I don't agree with it hmm. myself. Now, who are we going to let define the label? You know, if we're sticking with kingdom through covenant, um, progressive covenantalism, which I think we should, mm -hmm. uh, man, I, I disagree. I mean, I agree with way more than I disagree with in those volumes. They're really good volumes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, cool. Um, man, a lot of, a lot of questions are coming in and, I had a couple of objections I wanted to throw your way about NCT being new, being an innovation. Um, there, there is, let's, let's get to some of these comments here. And then there is one point that was brought up by 
one of those 1689 Federalist videos that were circulating about five years ago with Jim Renahan, Sam Renahan, and and those guys. But um, and that's on what law Christ fulfilled. But I've got to get to some of these comments. Um, so Blake, um, or I should say, we got to continue with the comments because this all this whole conversation spawned off of JY saying the PC is closer to, than NCT. <laughs> Uh, so Ron McKinney says that the entire of the entirety of the Mosaic law was fulfilled in Christ. Um, amen. I have no issues with that. Um, now this is coming from Donna. Oh, you know what? Let me change my views here. So Donna is a, a regular listener, watcher of the podcast. Here's what she says. She says, sorry, this, this, and by the way, you're going to see now Donna and I, we, we have a history of debating the, uh, the role of the law today. Um, and so you're going to see some of that come out in this comment. Here's what she says. Sorry. And she's a friend, by the way, sister in Christ. You know, I think she believes the gospel, but here's what she says. Sorry, this will be long. So you can decide if you want to read it all or not. If the law of God is no longer to be observed, why do we see both Jesus teaching people to keep it and also the church in acts keeping it? Um, I, going to say probably specifically she's referring to Acts 15. Donna, correct me if I'm wrong. If Jesus kept it, shouldn't we follow his example and look as much like him as we can? In Deuteronomy 13, God tells his people after laying out his law that if anyone comes and tells them differently, then that person is a false prophet. He tells them to hold fast to his commandments. And she continues, um, uh, let's see. Okay, I don't have the rest of that comment. So based on what she said so far, Blake, how would you respond to this? Yeah, well, good question and good concern, right? But, you know, I would just say that very clearly um, the New Covenant teaches, the New Testament teaches that Gentiles aren't under the Old Covenant law. I was just in 1 Corinthians 9, but let me just read 7, 19. I got my Bible open right here. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So wait a minute, aren't, isn't circumcision a commandment of God, but it's nothing. And even contrast. Now, I don't know if this, if Donna is, is a covenantal and has a tripart division and says, well, that's no longer binding there. There we get into that issue is that we don't have that uh, distinction or division found in scripture. So I would say the, the new Testament clearly teaches us. We're no longer bound to it or no or Gentiles aren't bound to it at all. Jewish Christians are no longer bound to it. So can see that again and again and again from most of the, I mean, Ephesians 2, Galatians 3, Hebrews, all over Acts. Now, still, still the word of God, I would say, I would still say even authoritative, just interpreted and applied in light of Christ. So it's not like we're dismissing any of scripture, but it's not directly binding. Sabbath is a clear example. There's a lot of other examples we could give that, that she would agree that she doesn't practice herself. Well, maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. Let me yeah. check her garden and her clothing tag, see what kind of clothes she has. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we do have folks who watch and who listen to this podcast who would say, like, I mean, I would I would go so far as to say there's some Judaizing going on where, mm -hmm. uh, you know, where Gentiles need to observe the Old Testament law. Um, now, I think that is going to dovetail well into this question. And I think, I think it was... Sam Renahan in, like I said, that there were these 
videos on 1689 federalism that went around about four or five years ago, explaining 1689 federalism, contrasting it to 20th century Reformed Baptist theology and New Covenant theology. And, and one of the things that he asked was, what law did Jesus fulfill for us? And he's, what he said was that New Covenant men, now this was Jim Renahan, I believe, who asked this question. He said that New Covenant men had not come up with an answer to this question. The implication being, because as New Covenant theologians, we like to say Gentiles have never been under the law of Moses. But if that's the case, and Jesus fulfilled, this is assuming Jesus fulfilled the law for us, what law did Jesus fulfill for us as Gentiles? And I'm about maybe 1% Jewish and 99% Gentile, so I'm going to put myself in the Gentile camp there. What law did Jesus fulfill for me if I've never, and my ancestors were never under the law of Moses? With that question, what text do you think he has in mind? Does he think in Matthew 5? Hmm. Jesus fulfilling the law for us? Like what, what text is he referring to there? Well, that's a good question. He didn't reference the text in the video. Maybe he's just assuming, maybe he's just assuming, so would you say that Jesus did not fulfill the law for us? Uh, well, I'm, I'm, no, I would, I would not say that, but I'm trying to think of a text where I would speak biblically about that question. Well, he became a uh, curse for us in Galatians. The Apostle Paul talks about cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree, and Jesus became a curse for us. Or in, unless he was specifically just speaking about Israelites. I know in... Um, I did an old episode of Conversations from the Porch, if you remember that podcast, um, and I spoke about Galatians 3 and 4 and Paul's use of pronouns there where he says we, sometimes he's talking about ethnic Israelites and he talks. He says you, he's talking to Gentiles. Did, did Jesus become a curse for Gentiles? What do you think? And if so, what law cursed him? Yeah, I'm not sure I know where they're coming from, but if it's like a gotcha question, I think we would all agree that Jesus kept the law of Moses perfectly, right? Okay. Yeah. Well, okay. Well, no, no. Here, this is where I, I get where he's coming from now. And and this <laughs> this does speak to you, I think, too, because if we're talking about imputed active obedience, uh, the, the active obedience, the so-called active obedience of Christ, <laughs> um, isn't isn't there the idea? Maybe you can unpack that, but isn't doesn't someone who believe in IAO or imputed active obedience, wouldn't they say not only Christ's death, um, a, a, it was it's not just that Christ's death propitiated God's wrath and expiated our sin, but also, and they call that his passive obedience, but also his active obedience is credited to us such that we are seen as if we had kept the whole law. Now, I don't personally hold to that. I hold that it was Christ's righteousness, sort of, you know, his, his de facto righteousness as the Son of God. Um, the spotless, blemishless lamb. But you're an, you're an IAO guy. You tell me what's credited to our account. Well, let me zoom out first because Please. others will want to say that this issue is what distinguishes PC and NCT. This, okay. the, the, I've only ever heard two issues that when people try to separate these things, yeah, yeah. I only ever hear two, covenant with creation and, uh, and imputation of active obedience, neither of which holds up to the history. John Riesinger once said something in a talk, something like uh, the imputation of active obedience is at the heart of the gospel. Ooh. <laughs> now, it was in a sermon. And, that one hurt. I'm not going to lie. He was quoting Machen, you know, Machen's dying words. My only hope is the active obedience of Christ. Oh, yeah. But I say that to say 
again, that can't be that can't be substantiated with the history if people are trying to say, well, NCT denies it or PC affirms it. Although I do, PC does affirm it. Okay. Um, and here's where I think uh, PC, the Kingdom Through Covenant book, is really helpful. And and so we've we've got our trees and our forests. We've got our exegesis and our biblical theology. We've got our text and our framework. And we always want to be checking both, right? We don't ever want to read the text with our framework, but we also want to, you know, always informing one another, exegesis, biblical theology. So let me zoom out and speak for us for a minute on this issue. I know I'm, you know, I know you've had, and we've had all the discussion about the key text, Romans 5 and and all of that. But zooming out a little bit, this is where I think uh, Wellam and Gentry are spot on with the nature of the Old Testament covenant being both conditional and unconditional. You know, sometimes people will say, argue that they're one or the other, but they show that there's this tension in all of them, you know, so everyone loves to point to Abraham. Well, look, he was asleep. Absolutely. It's unconditional. Well, yes and no, because right after that, it talks about the importance of his obedience. So there's this thread through every covenant starting in the garden with this tension of a call that God's going to do it, but we have to be faithful. Yeah. James focuses on Abraham's obedience. Paul focuses on his, his faith. Is right. So here's the here's the point. The question really, I think, starting in Genesis 3.15 is when is the obedient one coming? And so you see with Abraham, it's not Abraham. You see with each oh. mediatorial head, the question is when is the obedient son eventually, the obedient king coming? And so I think this whole debate on imputation and active obedience is not just looking at particular texts, but the whole narrative of Scripture is we're waiting on the obedient one unlike so many other unfaithful covenant heads. Okay, so so that obedience then, are we saying that that was obedience? Is, on your view, is it the obedience to the Mosaic law that is imputed to us? Or is it the obedience, I don't want to sound like I'm like I'm negating the importance of this or or, or whatever over generalizing, but just the fact that Jesus obeyed everything that the Father commanded him, which would include certainly the Mosaic law, except for maybe the parts where he transcended the law, touching lepers and things like that. Um, but Jesus also said, you know, I don't do anything on my own. I, I don't even speak on my own. I only say what the one who sent me told me to say. I only do what he told me to do. So there's obedience here, which goes beyond the Mosaic law. Is that what you're referring to? Or are you referring specifically to the 613 commands of the Torah? Yeah, I don't, I don't think we, could, we would want to or can find a text to try to limit Jesus's obedience. Okay, so then, so it's... So to, yes, to, yes, and yes. Okay, okay. <laughs> He's the so, faithful son that we need. Now, the difference between you and I and, you know, the other brothers is I think his obedience matters for us. I think, you know, and we don't have to get into that. We've all had sure, that debate. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, that's I would be more traditionally or standardly in the Reformation tradition on that question. Sure, sure. And I would be more in, uh, in the the view that's a little more, you know, biblical and doesn't get my theology from men. But, you know, that's fine. <laughs> That's terrible. Oh, man. Okay. See, this is why we can't build anything, Blake. That's right. Here we go, man. We just wasted 30 (laughs) minutes, man. Are we supposed to be talking about eschatology? That's right. That's right. Okay. Okay. (laughs) All right. Let's, let's, um, so, so Donna did clarify her question, but we've got to get on to a few more of the, uh, the the comments here. Um, so Donna, forgive me. We're going to have to move on. Um, okay. Uh, Jay Wise, we're going to have to put a cap on Jay Wise from Pamela Davey because he's got like 30 of them in here. Okay. Uh, let's see. 
uh, okay, man. Uh, the second kingdom through covenant. A couple of guys are just mentioning the second edition of kingdom through covenant. Which, Do we need to talk about the, the novelty of the deal? We probably should real quick though. Let's get to a couple more of these explicit comments here. Um, okay. Curtis Cutler says my thoughts while Jesus ministered, he didn't advocate undermining the OC old covenant law until fulfillment, the cross, but he pointed to the law of Christ describing a higher law. So Blake, would you say that the law of Moses was in effect until Christ's death on the cross? Uh, yeah, yeah. And I might even say until the destruction of the, the temple, depending on the reading of Matthew five, yeah. Matthew five, until heaven and earth pass away. That's also used in chapter 24, which would mean that the old covenant is in effect until it's literally not able to be in effect when finally the temple is destroyed. You could say the theological end was the cross and resurrection and the historical end was when there is no more temple. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm good with that. And, and then in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that the old system is, is passing away. It's basically, it's decrepit, it's old, it's, dis, it's yeah. dissolving, it's disintegrating. And yeah. in other words, hey, the temple's going to be destroyed pretty soon. It's not gone yeah. yet where there's, this, there's the overlap period between the old and the new covenant. Yeah. But yeah, okay. Um, all right, so we do need to talk about the novel, the supposed novelty of NCT. Really quick though, Donna, Donna has asked this. She says, if you could read the rest of the, the comment. And Blake, I do think this is important for, for talking with our dispensationally minded brethren. She says, if you could read the rest of the comment, there's a lot more explanation and question I had. As far as the verse you read, I believe he was saying being a Jew circumcised or Gentile uncircumcised matter, but keeping of the law. Hmm, I don't quite understand that, Donna. Even if you were born under the law, but don't keep it, it doesn't profit you. It's keeping of the commandments that matter. Hmm. I'm I'm not. Let's let's skip down to the bottom here because I'm not fully understanding that. But she says Daniel seven tells us that it is the beast who changes the times and laws, not the Messiah. So, yeah, man, there's a I, lot of Bible we could go to. Let me just read one verse. Okay. Um, so what we're talking about here is a, a covenantal shift that with it brings uh, a, a change in ethical requirements. One could look at marriage as well in this regard, but let me just read Hebrews 7, 11. Now, if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and another really important parenthetical comment, for under it, under the priesthood, the people received the law parentheses closed what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron here we go for when there is a change in the yes. priesthood there is necessarily a change in the law as well so the whole thing right it's a package deal priesthood and law and when there's a change of one there's a change of all we're not under the law of Moses as Gentiles we're under the law of Christ Amen. That's I actually had that verse pulled up. I was going to read it. Uh, if you, so I'm glad you went there. But you're right. There has been a change of law. Yeah. We have a new lawgiver. In fact, our lawgiver is so much. Uh, he supersedes the old lawgiver by so much. It's like the difference between the builder of a house and an artifact in a house. Moses is Moses is yeah. M Moses is like someone in the, the house. He's he's like he's like a piece of furniture in the house. 
but now yeah. we've got our, our new lawgiver who actually built the thing, built the house. And well, by this the way, right out of Deuteronomy 18, right? You'll, he tells Moses, there will be a prophet like you. Yes. Listen to him. Well, we have the baptism. We have the transfiguration. Yeah. Jesus is the final prophet. Amen. Amen. All right. Good, good, good stuff. Blake, we got to, we got to, we got to address this new covenant theology. It's called the new kid on the block. It's called the novelty. It's called an innovation. And the implication here is they're what they're trying to do is they're trying to discredit it. Those who would say that. And I think, I don't think they're being disingenuous, but the perception is that because new covenant theology is new, therefore it's, um, it's, it's somehow invalidated. What do you, what do you say to that? Yeah. Well, man, I'd be honest. I appreciate that knee jerk reaction. We ought to be suspicious of new newness, novelty, man, right. unlike so much of our world. Yep. But um, I don't think the accusation stand, the accusation stands, you know, you look at the other systems really before Darby, there was, you know, Darby invented basically, I mean, he, he wasn't the first, but invented dispensationalism pretty much. You don't find that language anywhere prior to him a couple, mm-hmm. a couple hundred years ago. Um, even though it is so popular today. Um, and then same with covenant theology, really, you know, you have, you have the, those Anabaptists giving Zwingli trouble and uh, covenant theology begins to be developed to justify infant baptism, I think. Mm-hmm. And then of course you have it put out in the Westminster confession and articulated more and more um, as the years go by. But one of the arguments I like to make is if you look at the exegesis and the hermeneutic of earlier church fathers, they don't fit anywhere super clearly, but if you had to pigeonhole them, they would fit closer to NCT. Yeah. So I'm thinking about guys like, you look at uh, Irenaeus, Leon's, look at his apostolic preaching of the cross. He's seeing this Christ-centeredness. You don't hear him talking about uh, Sabbatarianism or the covenant of works or covenant of grace. You hear him talking about this one plan of God centered in Christ. You look at uh, Justin Martyr, who speaks of Jesus as a new lawgiver mm-hmm. and speaks of the church as fulfilling Israel and his, and his apologetic with the Trifo of the Jew. He doesn't fit in the other two systems. He fits quite well within NCT. You look at John Chrysostom, the golden mouth preacher, especially his commentary on Galatians. He's got some beautiful stuff in Galatians 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, of course, you know, some of the writings of the Anabaptists and coming out of the evangelical. They were crazy Anabaptists. But uh, Pilgrim Marpeck and some of the evangelical Anabaptists that were seeing the newness of the new covenant. Uh, Luther has some, you know, his, his book on how Christians should regard Moses. Uh, there's a lot there that's similar sounding. So it's not brand new. It's not even the label's new, of course, but the hermeneutic, I would argue, is ancient. But at the end of the day, we care about what Scripture teaches, right? Amen. So just to put a little bow on that then, New Covenant theology, hardly a novelty. You would say it's reflected in the the church fathers. It's reflected even in uh, reformational writings, but ultimately it does find its roots and its earliest expression in scripture itself. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now that's, that's norm. what's that? Scripture's got to be the norming norm, right? We want exegesis to be the lifeblood. And... Amen. Amen. Absolutely. Okay. Jay Wise is going to have a conniption fit if we don't talk eschatology. Do you have a little <laughs> more time? We've gone over the, the, the time. Do you, are you okay for time for a few more minutes? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we got to talk about eschatology, man. So, Jay, just cool your jets, man. We're we're gonna we're we're gonna we gotta we gotta unpack this. What esch what what eschatological system, Blake? Do you subscribe to? What do you think is uh, most consistent 
with new covenant theology or progressive covenantalism? Yeah, well, man, I want to first say uh, that everything I've said and everything we've said is NCT mm-hmm. or PC. Mm-hmm. The hermeneutic, the seven points, they are totally consistent with historic pre-mill, amill, or post-mill. Because at the end of the day, when it kind of bugs me that we pigeonhole eschatology based upon one chapter. At the end of the day, those labels are determined by the relationship of Revelation 19 to Revelation 20. So, so within this conversation, any of those three uh, are consistent because each of us reads Revelation 19 and 20 differently. Mm-hmm. So, so let me say that first. Uh, within, within the camp, it's very consistent to be any of those three. Now, some people want to say it's more consistent than others. That's fine. Uh, for me, I'm an I'm a optimillennialist, to use George Grant's label. Um, I avoid post-mill most of the time just because of theonomy and the golden agers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in terms of the outlook and, and uh, the view of the temple being taught in Matthew 24 and the book of Revelation and, uh, and having an optimistic outlook because Jesus Christ is on the throne right now and that means something in history and Amen. he is doing enemies now and the last one will be death. I, I wish more New Covenant guys were optimistic. I was wondering why it was only three of us at, at a, the recent conference, but maybe because too many NCT guys are pessimistic. Whew, man. Well, it, you know, you look at the headlines, which they look, n- news outlets have to sell ads. And how do you yeah. sell ads? You, you know, you need clicks and people will click. People will click on things that aggravate them. People will click on things that get them upset. And so the headlines are all bad news. But Blake, I got to tell you, man, you, you you look at the history of the church over the last 2000 years and you can go to, um, I want to say it's a website called gospel map or something like that. You can look at the spread of Christianity from 2000 oh, years man. ago. Are to you today. kidding me? Oh man. It's amazing. It's unreal. It's, it's incredible. It's, it's unbelievable. And I mean, only the power of God can explain where we're at today. I mean, look what we're doing right now, man. I don't know how many viewers you got, but we're I've got a Bible wrapped in calf skin right now, man. Open it up, and we're unpacking the Word of God. When whoever yeah. in the world wants to log in and watch can watch. What is it not to be optimistic about? Oh man, brother! I, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, and I've been, <laughs> I've been becoming more optimistic over time. Here's, here's my issue with, as you call it, optimillennialism, postmillennialism. So I, I have a number of issues. One of them, apparently, is not an issue. Apparently, because I consider myself optimistic, I'm, I'm millennial which I would say biblical, but uh, here's my, uh, I like to troll people when I say stuff like that. So here's my issue. First of all, do post-millennial theologians, eschatologians, think that we will, that we will have a, a, a golden age? Are we waiting for, are we, because the way I was always taught, and apparently this is not accurate, the way I was always taught is that post-millennialism views that we will we will get to some tipping point. Let's say fifty one percent of the world will be evangelized and converted to Christianity, and that's when the millennium kicks off. And then from there, there will be some undefined period of time, defined from God's standard uh, perspective, of course. But there will be a long period of time, let's say a thousand years or something else, and then Jesus comes back at the end of that. But there has to be this tipping point where we reach the quote unquote millennium, the golden age. Is that what you believe, or would you agree? with me that we are in the millennium currently. Right. Yeah. No, that's why, that's why I said I, I typically don't use post mill to, to separate from theonomy, which obviously 
nowhere near theonomy, but also the golden agers, because I don't see that in scripture. So, you know, if I would probably fit more with an optimistic on mill than post mill. Having said that, um, historically, that's been the, the post mill view. It seems like there's a movement of a new strand of post mill that doesn't, that's not a golden age, not a golden age view. Right, right. And and I, I see, you know, guys like Doug Wilson and and that whole, I don't see them talking about a golden age. I, I yeah. hear them talking about Jesus, unless I'm mistaken. I think they, uh, they would say. Yeah, I don't, you don't hear much anymore. The Puritans did. but So I, yeah. I do think the millennium started when Jesus bound the strong man so that the gospel could now go out to all nations. Amen. Amen. So, okay. So then we're, we're actually very much in agreement on that. We're in the millennium now. Jesus is on the throne. Next question. Um, could Jesus come back tonight? Yeah. But see, that's not post mill. How is that post mill? Because, you know, the world has sure to be sure he, he, I think we need to be ready because what's left on the eschatological timetable uh, is things getting bad for the end of Revelation 20. One mm -hmm. last hurrah from the enemy. Mm -hmm. But uh, my personal opinion is that we're here for a long time. And ought to be ought to be living that way, and ought to be building that way. But yeah. could he return? In terms of my view of what's left to happen, um, his you know the last enemy is left to be defeated. Yeah. But I think yeah. you've got. I mean, it's only been two thousand years. I think we can be so myopic mm. uh, of, of the Lord's timetable. I hope I'm wrong. I'd love for him to come back right now. But yeah, I think we're in for a long time. Part That's of why me, I'm not worried about the headlines, man. Amen. Amen. Part of me. Um, Part of me really wants the whole thing to be done in 6,000 years or thereabouts. I mean, I really want that, man. I love a nice, clean system. And, I, <laughs> and, uh, and you know, I'm, I'm what you might call a young earth creationist. And so I like the idea that, you know, the world was created in 4004 BC, as Bishop Usher said. And we've been going about 2,000 years since Christ. You, you know, we're getting close. We're getting close to the end there on that view. And maybe that's some of my latent dispensation, my, my, uh, my latent dispensationalism still, uh, uh, functioning there. But, um, but you know, I'm, I'm with you. We do have to be building as though Jesus might, he might tarry. He may tarry for another 10,000 years, 20,000 years. Who knows? Yeah. And what's the alternative? Like if, if we're wrong, uh, what what do we do? You know, do we sit back and watch Netflix? No, man, we live for the Lord. We we build. We we give our lives yeah. for His glory, for the church, right. for our families. Right. And if if you know He comes back the next generation, and we, that was not labor in vain. But if yeah. He comes back in a thousand years, man, we worked we worked towards building godly legacies and institutions and those yeah. things. Okay. Well, let me push back a little bit more then. But first, JY says. Um, modern post mill teaching has left the golden age idea, so that's that's helpful. J. E. Yeah, who gets, who gets to say that? Who says that? Who makes uh, that definition? Because the very thing post mill, right? Like you said, but right. by definition, right? So, but hey, that's good news to me. I think that's a, a bad idea. So I hope yeah. he's right. Okay, uh, J. E. Bennett echoes that. He says there are some golden ages out there, but yes, a small camp now. JY says this, and I want to know what, what your, your thought is here. He says that 1 Corinthians 15 makes it seem like Christ will return once all the enemies are made a footstool for his feet, and then the last one to be defeated is death, which is defeated at his return. So I think we have some time, he says. Now, I think here's so my, too. Okay, J, uh, J and Blake then, here's my question. Jesus says 
in that great passage, and I believe it's Matthew 24, where Jesus is describing the fall of the temple, and he says, he essentially says, this he says, this generation will not pass away until that happens, but or until these things happen. But of that day, in other words, of my second coming, the what we call the parousia, the presence, the returning of Christ, where he comes in judgment, he says, no one will know the day of the hour, the day or the hour. And the 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 picture that we have is everyone is going to be totally caught off guard. That to me, Blake, seems like an imminent, uh, the doctrine of imminency. Jesus is going to return. No one's going to know when it is. And that, by the way, also sounds like there's going to be a lot of unbelief in those days. There's going to be a lot of worldliness. There's going to be a lot of people going about their daily lives totally unaware, totally not only not expecting that Jesus comes back soon, but not hoping for it. Whereas guys like you and me, I mean, I, I don't know how much time I have, but I would love for Jesus to come back tonight. I'd love for him to come back before we finish this episode. Help me reconcile those, those uh, two beliefs. On the one hand, Jesus's enemies are going to be placed under his feet. On the other hand, he could come back at any moment, and it doesn't seem like all of his enemies have been placed under his feet. Yeah. Um, man, when it comes to start trying to quantify any of this, I just think it's a lost cause. Hmm. So I want to affirm both. Maybe maybe I could be called inconsistent. Um, but I think in terms of the timetable, I do think Jay makes a good point. There's a lot of victory left to be had. But I also want to affirm how much victory he has had uh, in 2,000 years. So I want to affirm both that yeah. I think we've got a long way to go, but I want to be ready. I think that's yeah. a good posture to have. Okay. No, that's, that's really great. Um, do you, do you want to talk really quickly about the idea that when, when Christ ushered in the new covenant era, in some theological sense, that was heaven and earth passing away? Because Donna asks the question, she says that the, the law, as Jesus puts it, he said, not one jot or one tittle of the of the law would pass away until all is accomplished. Even if he says until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot, not one tittle of the law will pass away until all is fulfilled. So Blake have heaven and earth passed away in a, in, in a sense that we could now say the law has been done away with, because that does factor into es eschatology as well. What Donna's implying here is that look around heaven and earth are still here the end times haven't been fulfilled yet. So therefore the old covenant law is still in effect. You and I, I believe would say something different, but how would you respond? Yeah. Well, gosh, within NCT, there's probably three different ways to read that passage. That's again, okay. that's all consistent with NCT. And so you said she's talking about five seventeen to 20. And so there's a view that says basically all of the law interpreted in light of Christ is, is now, applicable until the end of history there's a view that says the commandments actually are referring to what jesus is about to do in matthew 5 21 and following where he gives you know you've heard it said but i say to you my view is probably quite minority view but i think in matthew 5 uh in in a lot of scripture heaven and earth is talking about the temple where heaven and earth overlap you know the the temple is the the footstool of god so this is where they overlap heaven and earth is a way of saying the temple, and that's what he's talking about, both in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 24. So yes, I would say, biblically speaking, heaven and earth have passed away, because it's not a literal shaking of the 
heavens. It's a, it's a euphemism uh, that you can make a big argument for all through the Old Testament that, that the temple's this microcosm of, you know, microcosm, right? Yeah. Of right. the whole world. So, but again, right. I don't know that I know anybody that holds that view. So I, I would want to qualify that. But <laughs> whether these are legitimate views, I've held them. Now, that's, that's good. You know, the way I look at that is what Jesus is saying is, well, I'm, okay, on the one hand, heaven and earth, the stars falling from the sky, heaven and earth passing away, is sort of apocalyptic language, meaning until this order, until this epoch has been done away with, these yeah. things won't happen. Yeah, and, that's important to say. There are biblical quotations there, Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34, where Babylon and Edom are right. taken out. So these nation states that you never thought would be shook are shook. Right. It's like, you know, we say today, you know, LeBron, you know, had an earth shattering dunk. Well, oh yeah. The earth didn't shatter, right? But it was a but it was nice. Yeah. That that's right. That's right. And and so in a very important sense, the old order of the old the old order of things, the old epoch, the former age has passed away. In a in a very real sense, that world you know, the, th th think about what you said earlier. Look at us a couple of, are, are you, are you a uh, Jewish or are you Gentile? Gentile. Well, yeah, spiritually Jewish. Yes. <laughs> okay. So, so look at a couple of ethnic Gentiles sitting around talking about the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, man, something is very new about this. This yeah. is, this is incredible. So inclusion, inclusion theology. Amen. Amen. And the other thing I would say there too, is Jesus is saying, look, I don't care if heaven and earth pass away. I don't care if this universe gets destroyed. There is no way that the that the law of God can be abrogated except under one condition. It has to be fulfilled. And then he went and fulfilled it. So the condition there, one of two things could, could happen. Heaven and earth could pass away, but that wouldn't have negated the law. Or Jesus could fulfill the law. And then he went up, he climbed up on Mount Calvary, and he fulfilled it. And so now... Yes, the law of Moses has passed away. The law of Moses has. Uh, uh, Paul Kaiser likes to say, Moses wasn't fired, he was retired. That's good, yeah. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, maybe. That's Second Corinthians 3. I mean, that's all over the New Testament. I mean, I just don't think you can get away from it. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is, this is good. Uh, Curtis Cutler says, I think he agrees with me, but likes yours. He says, I've heard heaven and earth passing away is an idiom for saying nothing is going to stop this fulfillment, which happened at the cross. But then he says, but the temple one is good. So he, I think <laughs> he, he likes both of our responses. Okay, last comment here. Um, Nate Werner asks this. He says, what does golden age mean in this context? If anything, I would think modern post-mills, post-millennialists, believe the entire millennium is a golden age unless I'm mistaken. Is that what you believe? Do you believe that? No, I, I don't believe that. No, but I think historically post mill would like you articulated it earlier that I think of historically, I'm trying to think maybe Lorraine Bettner or some, somebody like that, or one of the Puritans would say that we're not in the millennium yet. So Christ will continue to subdue his enemies. Like you said, until some tipping point, which begins the millennium, most, most of which they didn't see as a literal thousand years, but then was this golden age um, of Christianity. Now the theonomists would also say that's when the Mosaic law becomes instituted at that point. I don't, I don't agree with any of that stuff. So mm. that's why I'll say optimillennial or optimistic amillennial. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Um, a lot of, a lot more questions in the comments. Uh, Blake, if you want to have some fun, go ahead and, and, uh, <laughs> and, and have at that after we're done here. Um, 
I, I, I want to reserve the right to ask one question just from myself, uh, speaking in terms of, because Theon, there's a lot of work that theonomists are doing nowadays, and theonomists would be people who would say the civil law of God is still in effect. And again, we don't recognize the distinction between moral, civil, and ceremonial. But Blake, would you say that the the Old Testament law, the laws that pertained to civil government, to civil society, would those make a good guideline for, if you were going to start a new nation today, would those Old Testament laws make a good framework for how you'd establish your constitution? No, I wouldn't. Uh, some, but part of it is, I think, missing the part of the purpose, right? There's multi-purposes in the giving of the law, okay. but part of which was to drive them to despair, mm. right? Yeah, that's right. And so to lead to the gospel. And so some of that is a, is a testing. Some of that is making distinct for distinction's sake. Uh, but some of it is to drive to despair intentionally. So, so no, I wouldn't, I'm not theonomous hardly in any, in any capacity, I don't think. Okay. Okay. No, I, I appreciate that. Uh, Blake, if people want to follow your work, where can they go? How can they do that? Yeah. Uh, books you can find on Amazon. If you just searched a Blake White, uh, blakewhite.org, you can find links to some some writings and sermons, Southside Baptist Church, ssbaptist.org, um, on Facebook, um, Twitter, email, if I can help in any way, I'd love to. Wonderful. Um, what's, what's, what's the next project you have on the horizon that you're most excited about? Yeah, well, the school is uh, is is a big one. Getting the school up and going, writing wise, I'm I'm uh, doing my D-man, and my uh, my dissertation will be on male headship in the home. Yeah. So uh, I'll I'll end up writing probably a book as well as kind of a manual uh, for churches, basically to raise men up to lead, love, provide, protect. So I'm really excited about that. But that won't be out for a long time, a couple years probably. Okay. Okay. Lead, love, protect. And provide, provide and protect. Okay. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I, I like all of those. I only wish that you had narrowed it down to three. The, the, the John frame student in me wishes that you had made that a, uh, a nice triad, but you know, Hey, that's okay. That, yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll work on it. It's not, I've got a lot of time. <laughs> Brother, this was a blessing, man. And we've, I, I thank you because we went way over time. Um, I told you an hour and, and, uh, you were gracious enough to stay on longer with me. Great to hear your your thoughts on this, your insights. Um, everybody watching, listen, go buy one of his books. I mean, this I can't even tell you how many people, Blake, when they found out I was having you on, they're like, oh, I love his writings. I love his books. So um, for, those, for the uninitiated, go check out Blake White's book. I definitely recommend What is New Covenant Theology. I've got that myself on my shelf, although it's packed up now because we're moving. But, um, but Blake, real blessing to have you on, brother. Thank you so much. You too, man. Thanks for having me. All right. I'm going to do my little outro now. So uh, thanks for connecting with and watching the Think Podcast. If you want to connect with the Think Institute, I would love for you to do so. Go to thethink.institute. Check us out. Get all of our back catalog of Think Podcast episodes and um, subscribe by going to thethink.institute slash podcast. And um, 
Also, in case you didn't know, my wife and I are support raising missionaries. And so we rely on the generous financial and prayer support of like-minded individuals like you and your church. So you can find out more about that by going to give.crew.org slash 1018841. Also want to give a shout out to the Christian Culture Builders Facebook group and something to put on your uh, something to put on your uh, your uh, on your horizon. Starting in 2021, we are going to be restarting starting round two of the Hammer and Anvil Society, which is our semi-secretive, sinister, saintly society of intense, focused discipleship to help guys like you or your husband make a strategic impact in the cities in which they live by working through the spheres of authority, the household, the church, and government. So stay tuned for that. And I certainly hope you heard something that was helpful to you. I know I certainly did. This is not goodbye. This is just a little pit stop along the way of your spiritual journey. Until next time, I hope it made you think.